Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the HIS 296 podcast. Um, this week, uh, continuing in the sections of the course theme, the two Koreas, after spending a few weeks delving into various aspects of South Korea in the post-war period, uh, we are turning our attention this week back to North Korea and going to be focusing in specifically on the reign of Kim Jong-il, um, who would officially take the helm of power in 1994 upon the death of his father, Kim Il-sung, who we've already spent a great time talking about. And for the podcast today, I'm going to keep things relatively short, just point out a few things that I think come out in the readings and things we're going to try to dig into um, in a little bit more detail in the class this week. One thing that I think is important to point out um, for a host of reasons um, is that Though Kim Jong-il did officially assume power, um, no, notably he didn't become president, right? I think as we've already mentioned, uh, Kim Il-sung is the eternal president of North Korea. So his position was head of the Korean Workers' Party, um, head of the military and, and various other top positions in the bureaucracy and the state, but did not in fact become president. Nonetheless, he um, officially took over the reins of power in 1994. What's important for our story is to understand that um, Kim Jong-il's rise to power and his emergence as the dominant force within North Korean society or within the North Korean state um, and within the Korean Workers' Party really goes back to the 1970s. And in some ways, that's integrated with the story of Kim Jong-il himself, who, um, you know, in, in not talking about in terms of good or bad or, or so forth, it just it's, you know, decidedly was someone quite different from his father. Um, his father was certainly, you know, a, a, a whether we, whatever we agree, you know, whatever we think about him personally was um, a reasonably courageous person, at least in terms of pursuing his objectives and did fight in Manchuria and lived in the life of exile and um, engaged in a host of very underhanded political maneuvering and, and often very violent action against um, his enemies or even those that he perceived to be potential enemies and more broadly was somewhat of a charismatic figure, um, someone who generally liked, especially in the earlier part of his reign, to get out into North Korea and mingle with the people and talk to them. And um, he had a very kind of, at least as been detailed, a quite warm presence with the common people. Um, in, in politics, people often refer to that as the common touch. Um, and again, that that is totally separate from what we feel about him as an individual or as a leader, and, and it doesn't mitigate any of the um, crimes or, or other things that um, Kim Il-sung committed. But suffice to say, he he did have some charisma and an ability to garner um, a, a certain amount of respect and, and admiration from the public. Um, by contrast, Kim Jong-il was very solitary, um, very you know, kind of inward looking, uh, an introverted kind of person. Um, he wasn't, he didn't have kind of the big physical presence his father had. And certainly he did not have history um, as a kind of revolutionary fighter in Manchuria. Um, and in actuality, um, grew up in relative privilege and comfort um, as a the son of the president of North Korea, right? And so in, in some ways, just um, their life stories um, between the son and the father were extremely different. But what Kim Jong-il did possess was a keen awareness of his situation, which was that he was in line to succeed his father, that that was the plan, but that was no guarantee, right? That, you know, clearly he would not be able to take over power until his father was either had died or was, you know, severely physically incapacitated. 
and he realized that there's no promise that North Korea North Korea was a very cutthroat place, the North Korean state, the North Korean regime. Um, and he realized that there were many factions and, and people who were angling for power and that he needed to build his own basis of support. Um, that being the son of Kim Il-sung was not going to be enough. What's more, he lacked, again, his own kind of um, historic credentials that his father had. And so the story of Kim Jong-il really begins in the 70s and 80s um, with this realization and an increasingly adept ability to maneuver within the bureaucratic politics of the North Korean state and the North Korean Workers' Party to... Um, develop a devoted following, a loyal following of people who would back him and ensure his transition to power upon his father's death. Part of this involved becoming extremely closely connected with the military, right? That under Kim Il-sung, the Korean Workers' Party tended to be the center of the state, the center of power. Uh, Realizing this, Kim Jong-il began to um, develop very close relations with members of the Korean military, and that would uh, prefigure one of the big transitions that would take place under Kim Jong-il um, with the proclamation of the military first policy, right? And, and so we can see some of the origins in, um, in and, and in some ways, it's not clear that Kim Jong-il was particularly interested in the military or, or looking to elevate the military for any sort of strategic reasons other than to, again, establish his own basis of support within the North Korean state to guarantee his accession to power um, when his time, when that time came. Similarly, uh, at the same time, um, Kim Jong-il realized that he lacked some of the, um, again, kind of credibility or historic standing that his father had um, based on his record um, as this revolutionary freedom fighter. Now, of course, the North Korean regime um, well overplayed the feats of Kim Jong Kim Il-sung and, and what he did in Manchuria and um, kind of underplayed the fact that he spent a great deal of the end of the colonial period in, you know, living in relative comfort and safety in the Soviet Union. But nonetheless, as we've discussed, his participation with the Chinese communist fighters in Manchuria is well documented, was uh, in fact um, something that did happen there was the Battle of Pochonbo that, uh, again, was perhaps well overplayed by the North Korean propaganda, but did occur and did gain some notoriety even at the time before any notion or establishment of North Korea. And Kim, Il- Kim Jong-il lacked that kind of gravitas, that kind of history. So he set about establishing himself within the regime in several ways. One of the more interesting ways was through um, being involved in the development of film as propaganda, both inward propaganda and as a way to kind of um, bolster North Korea's image as an advanced country with a with a um, bustling film industry. He was a, a film kind of buff and, and really loved watching movies and making movies. Um, and from all accounts, wasn't totally awful at, at the process of producing and making movies. He had some ability in this regard. Um, but more importantly, he set about um, establishing himself as a, the key kind of innovator or developer of the Juche philosophy, right? And so this was a way for him to establish, again, his kind of bona fide position within the Kim kind of dynasty and as the rightful heir to his father, Kim Il-sung, by trying to make a name for himself by expanding and developing and improving and refining um, this notion of Juche that was set out by his father several decades before. And and it was through this that Kim Jong-il sought to promote himself as some authentic, real, 
figure of importance and significance within the North Korean um, state and society. And it seems that to some extent that also garnered him some attention. So these were all steps that were again being taken throughout the 70s and throughout the 1980s. And many have argued um, Lankoff, who we've read for the course and who is assigned as the advanced reading this week, um, in particular argues that really by the time we get to the mid and late 1980s, um, in many ways, Kim Jong-il had supplanted his father in all but fact, right? That his father was older and less involved in day-to-day affairs. And that um, by that time, by the mid to late 1980s, Kim Jong-il had accumulated huge amounts of power and loyalty around him that really put him at the center of North Korean politics and pushed his father increasingly to a more um, distant and ceremonial role. What I want to leave with here is um, just to point out again that a lot of the features that North Korean society would take on and develop under Kim Jong-il have their roots in the avenue and the pathway that he took to power, notably, again, focusing on um, the role of the of the military and, and, and establishing himself as the kind of champion of the military and putting the military first, um, but also, again, in elevating, expanding, and refining Juche philosophy, which would make Juche and the celebration of Juche, at least as an idea, central to the regime's propaganda and legitimation with society during that period. And and these things um, would intermix with several important external and internal um, developments during the period, one being the famine that would take place and in, in, in outbreak in, in the mid-1990s and lead to the deaths of huge swaths of the population. And that was in some ways exacerbated by probably the the biggest shock to North Korean society during this period, which would be the collapse of the Soviet Union and the complete almost elimination of all aid from the Soviet Union, which had continued to be a huge source of funds and support for the regime. And the way that Kim Jong-il reacted to those events and, and the path he went down was in some ways has its roots in this journey that began in the 70s and 80s as he began to try to accumulate power and present himself and establish himself as the sole heir to Kim Il-sung, his father. Okay, well, I'll leave it there for today. I look forward to seeing you in class next week. Thanks so much for listening.